Brilliant. Well, good morning, everybody. Morning. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam, and I have the privilege of uh, looking after the children and the young people here at Gateway. It's a great privilege. And we are continuing in our series this morning in the book of Ezra. So if this is your first time with us, or if you've missed a couple of weeks, the book of Ezra is the story of the Israelites returning from exile to rebuild Jerusalem, and in particular, the temple. And as we've been looking at the, the, the book of Ezra, what we've been looking at as we've been looking at how God is calling us to be a people who prioritize his presence. That, that is God, that's what God is calling us to be as a people. And up until this point in the story, you could say that the, the tone or the feel of the book has been one of encouragement. It's been quite, it's been an exciting story so far because God has moved, he's made a way for his people. There's been favor found with kings and emperors and, and the people of the land. There's been this, this sense of God fulfilling what he'd promised. A remnant has returned to Jerusalem to rebuild. There's, this, there's been this sense of hope, this sense of optimism. However, we're gonna look at Ezra 4 today and that tone is about to change. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. If you do not have a Bible, do not worry. It should hopefully go on the screen above me. And I'm actually going to read from the screen because this is a different translation, I've realized. Right, so the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Esarhaddon, that was difficult, of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua and the other leaders of Israel replied, you may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. Okay, so at first glance, this seems like quite, it seems like a bit of a playground squabble. Because what it feels like is that you've got these like two groups of kids, right? So you've got the first group of kids that are playing a game, and then you've got this second group that want to come and join in the game, and the first group of kids are really mean and say no, and then the second group of kids get a bit angry and then make life difficult for the first group of kids. It kind of it feels a bit like that, right? That's this, there's this kind of argument that's going on where people want to join in and other people aren't being let to you know, being allowed to join in, and, and it feels a bit like this. And the temptation can be then to feel like the Israelites have actually been quite mean. They've been very exclusive. And in, in some ways, you're kind of like, well, you kind of deserve what you got. You were quite harsh. You were mean. And the response that you got, kind of, you can't be surprised at that response. But as is often the case, as we, as we look into the background, as we look into what's going on, as we look into the context of which this passage is, then we start to see that there's loads of stuff underneath this which helps us make sense of this. So the first thing really is that the, the passage itself just gives us this really clear kind of clue at the very start, okay? Because what it says is it talks about how they were the enemies of the people of God. They were the enemies of the Israelites. It says that straight away in verse one, that these people were never the friends of God's people, that they were merely pretending to be. So like the phrase wolves in sheep's clothing, so that would apply to these people. 
And the second thing is that is when we go down to verse 2, who they say that they are gives us that context to what they're really about and what they're really up to. So we see the story of these people coming into the land in 2 Kings chapter 17. And basically what happens is the northern kingdom of Israel, so 10 of the tribes of Israel, they are taken off into exile into Assyria. Okay, so the Assyrian king comes and defeats them and then takes an entire population into exile. And in order to then still work the land and get the produce and do all that sort of stuff, he then brings an, all these other people from other parts of his empire into Samaria, into the northern kingdom. Okay, and they start doing what they've always done. They worship their idols, they worship their gods. And then this, these wild lions come amongst them and they start killing them. And so this, it's almost like a plague of lions comes amongst these people. And so they send back to the, the king in Assyria and they go, look, we're being killed. We don't know how to worship the god. The god of this land wants to be worshipped. How do we do that? And so he sends a priest. And so the priest teaches them how to worship Yahweh, but they still keep worshipping all their other gods. Okay, so this is what is the way it's described in 2 Kings chapter 17. It says, These new residents worship the Lord, but they also appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests to offer sacrifices at their places of worship. And though they worship the Lord, they continue to follow their own gods according to the religious customs of the nations from which they came. And this is still going on today. They continue to follow the former practices instead of truly worshipping the Lord and obeying the decrees, regulations, instructions and commands he gave the descendants of Jacob, whose name he changed to Israel. And so what they, they wanted is they wanted to influence and control how God was going to be worshipped within this temple. They wanted their way of worship to be established in Jerusalem amongst this people. That it was a means to influence and control. And actually in ancient near, the ancient Near East, when you built a temple, those who contributed to the building of it then had a say in what went on inside it. Does that make sense? So if you build the temple, you get to take part in what, in, in a, you have a say in what's going to happen, who's going to be worshipped and how they're going to be worshipped. And so what we then find is that their request to help build the temple is actually them asking to do the very thing which Israel was exiled for in the first place. So Israel, in, in particularly within Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem, they had been exiled because again and again and again and again and again and again, they had worshipped other gods. They had set up idols in the temple. They had done all of these things. And as a result, God put judgment, judged them, and they got taken off into Israel, to Babylon and to Persia. And so these people are coming to them and basically saying, just go back to the way that it was. Do it again, like worship, we can put other idols in this temple, we'll worship Yahweh, but we'll also worship all of these other gods as well. And so the response of Israel had to be, no, no, we, we, you've got no part in this with us. But having said that, they weren't actually that mean in the way they responded, it was actually very diplomatic because it wasn't personal or even religious. They kind of were very diplomatic. There was a bit of a kind of a lawyer in them and they, can, they said, actually, the King Cyrus of Persia has told us to do this, not you, so that means that we're going to do it. So it was actually a very diplomatic response. And what you get is that some commentators talk about how there's been this long history of conflict between these two peoples, right, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But despite of that, some commentators think that actually this is the start 
of kind of this distrust and hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews that you see in the Gospels. So, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you know that story, the, the person who is the good guy in that story is a Samaritan, and all the Jews in hearing that would have been like, no, never, never a Samaritan, because there was this deep distrust, and it, might, it may have come from this conflict that we're looking at this morning. And then following this, following their rejection, the inhabitants of the land, they, they show their true colours, okay? The gloves come off, and they discourage, they intimidate, they frighten, and they frustrate the work of God's temple being built through deceit. And this actually lasts for 20 years. 20 years, the Israelites cannot build a single stone more of the temple, they are completely stopped in this work. This is a relentless, focused, intentional effort to frustrate the plans of God and his purposes for his people. So the question then is, basically, what does this have to do with us? And these events that happened a long time ago in a faraway place, what does it have to do with us? Well, the answer is actually quite a lot. Because what this shows us is that prioritizing God's presence will bring opposition. Prioritizing God's presence will bring opposition. We have an enemy, Satan, who works in the spiritual, but he also works in the physical through people, organizations, institutions, and sometimes even nations to disrupt and frustrate the purposes of God amongst his people to be a people of his presence. So the way he's described in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 is this. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood and enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There are so many ways which Satan seeks to do this in our lives. But I think one of the ways in our context today is through distraction. Distraction, because our phones, our tablets, our TVs, our laptops, our work, our emails are going off non-stop. It is a constant barrage of distraction and information coming towards us. And therefore, we don't have space or time to pursue God. To go after God, go after his presence, to be people that are about his presence. So I was, I was read this quote yesterday. And I thought it was, it was quite apt. So this is from someone who's done a load of research into basically the reasons why people don't, aren't kind of spending time with God. And this was his conclusion. I think it was after 11 years of research. It may be the case that Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deterioration, deteriorating relationship with God which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And then the cycle begins again. Yeah? And that is, that is a challenge. And technology, technology is a gift from God. It is a gift of God because technology isn't just about phones and iPhones. Right? Technology is about innovation in all sorts of things that bring incredible blessings to people's lives. Technology is not the enemy in any way, shape or form. But what it can be used 
by our enemy is to lull us into this place of ineffectiveness and a compromised spirituality, which means that we do not live out our lives in the fullness of what Jesus has won for us on the cross. It's like a lullaby, right? It just rocks us to sleep. It just rocks us out of what God is calling us to. You know, as, as the truth of God's promise has spoken over our lives, who we are in him, that we are loved, that we've got a plan and a purpose, that we are sons and daughters, that there are gifts that God has given us, that there is a kingdom that he is establishing, then the distractions around just go, shh, it's all right. Just go on TikTok. Shh. It's all right. That new Netflix show looks great. Shh, it's okay. And we just get, we get, we get lulled into this, 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 this ineffectiveness and this compromised walk. And if you're feeling dry in your walk as a Christian, can I just say, would you just spend 30 minutes of uninterrupted time with phones off and other distractions gone a day for a month? And I can guarantee that you will feel like you hear God clearer, that you know more of a sense of his presence in your life, that you know more of where, what he's calling you to, just 30 minutes every day without any distractions. And it will change, it will transform something of our lives just as we pursue his presence. Because it may be that if we have a lack of opposition in our lives, it's because we are not pursuing God's presence. It's not the only reason, right? God is good and God is with us. But it may be that if there is no opposition in our lives, it's because we are not pursuing the presence of God. We're not living our lives in light of his gospel. And that doesn't mean that we're going to go and, and seek out persecution. And it definitely doesn't mean that we should go and be kind of Christian jerks so that people then attack us and you know, you're like, yes, I'm, be, I'm worthy. You know, it's, it's not like that at all. It is actually a sense of going, actually, this, the way we, if we're living our lives in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus is doing, if we are prioritizing and pursuing his presence, there will be opposition. Because we have an enemy who hates that. And the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, what he has done, it demands a response from us. There is a response that has to be had to the gospel. And no matter where you stand with it, there is a response. And people should be responding to that. So what can we learn from the experience of the Israelites? Look, the first thing is that opposition, first and foremost, does not appear to be opposition. Okay? It is not an outright attack. It's not an outright anything like that. Opposition, first and foremost, looks really innocent, but always involves compromise. So the Israelites will have known what the inhabitants of the land were really asking. And they would also have been so aware that when they responded, it may have caused trouble. But they had to respond in that way because of faithfulness. And for us, we, we may have experienced this on a personal level as we're seeking to live, live for God, to prioritize his presence. You may have been asked to do something which seems innocent, but you know full well will involve compromise. You know full well involves compromise. So it may be, you know, you're being asked to be a team player at work, but that involves, you know, you just got to work Sundays. You may be being asked to join in with the gossip or, or to do something that, you've, that is, is questionable in order to show that you're a team player at work, that you're on board. It may be that you've been, been told that you need to show that you're part of this family by tolerating or agreeing to behaviours and attitudes that you know to be wrong. It may be that we're told either individually or a church 
that we can't teach the exclusive gospel of Jesus or the historically Christian view of sex and marriage. There are these, these things that come across as, as innocent requests, but to, they involve compromise. And charity, kindness, humility, deep sacrificial love, all of those things are results of the gospel and working in our lives and maturity as believers. Compromising in the names of tolerance and inclusivity is not. That we need to be people who are about God's presence, showing Jesus without compromise. Once this first stage of opposition is resisted, the mask is dropped and the gloves come off. And people and principalities will seek to discourage us, to make things difficult, to put us down, to exclude us, to frighten us, to make threats, to intimidate, to be aggressive or violent, to frustrate what God is calling us to do through the abuse of power, through the manipulation, manipulation of rules and things like that. There have been countless times in my life where I have been told, it's been made abundantly clear to me that if I compromise on the life and the teachings of Jesus, life will be easier for me. That things will go easier for me, that I will fit in more, that things would go better for me. And when, that, when I have not compromised in those situations, and I'm not saying I have every time, I have compromised at points. When I haven't, the result of that has been, it's then become a lot harsher. It's re resulted in threats, it's resulted in aggression and sometimes violence because the majority of that for me played out at school and in the sports, the sports teams that I've been in a part of since. There's those environments. It starts off with quite innocence about, come on, just get involved. And then it leads to, well, you, you know, you're clearly not part of us then. You know, why wouldn't you do this? And, it, and it, go, it turns in different ways. And that is one of those things that, that we can, I think we probably, a lot of us would have those stories about. But the thing that I came back to in so many of those situations was Psalm 63, verse 3, that your unfailing love is better than life. Knowing God, knowing his presence far exceeds any comfort or social standing that I could have gained through compromising on who God is and what he's called me to be as his son. And we just need to know that. And also the other thing is just knowing that I had a church, I had a community of people around me who would help me and walk with me through those things. And that there was a way, there was a better way of living and that was in following Jesus. And this may feel like a heavy or, or a somber message, but God has just made it so clear throughout the Bible that for those of us as his people who prioritize his presence, we will face opposition. Jesus says it. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And having said all of that, we, we know we're living in the light of the victory of Jesus. It just doesn't mean that we won't face opposition. It doesn't mean that we're, but we have got that victory. And this was, um, Barney used this analogy last week as we were giving our, our notice about the, the time changes, about how like, there's, there's that mentality of, of being a Christian. You're either on a cruise ship or a battleship. And if you think you're on a cruise ship, you think that you're just there to just relax and chill and, you know, kind of, um, you know, I think, you know, Jazz and, Jazz and JJ and the family went away on a cruise this week. And if, and if like, bombs had started coming in, or there had been gunfire, you'd been like, what the flip is this about? Like, this is not what I signed up for. But if you're on a battleship and you start taking fire, 
You're like, this is exactly what I signed up for. I've got the people around me. I know what I'm to do. I've got the people around me to support me. And we're going to go to war. We're going to fight back. And actually, to be the, the Christian life is about being on a battleship together, being on a battle standing, because we are in a war against spiritual authorities, against sin and Satan and death. And the good news is Jesus has won the victory over all of that on the cross. But it doesn't mean that we will not face opposition now in this life. Because, but we do have hope. And that's what we fight. We have hope because God is with us by his Holy Spirit, ministering to us and working through us because we have the authority of Jesus given to us to change things and situations. This is what Dave was sharing about this morning. And because we are free from accusation and condemnation through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And after all of that, we still look forward to our future victory when Jesus returns and all things will be made new. There'll be no war footing at that point. The victory is won. But until that time, we face opposition and we be to be a people that prioritise his presence and pursue him. So I'm just going to finish this morning with the words of Jesus from John chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus says, Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. Lord, your love is better than life. Lord, your presence is something that we could not know outside of Jesus. But Jesus, you have made a way that we can know your presence, that we have become your temples, the places where people meet you. Lord, we want to be a people about your presence. And Lord, we thank you that you are so good to make us not unaware of the opposition and the trials that can come as a result of that. But Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us. Lord, would you fill us with your, your Holy Spirit that we may be bold and courageous to do the things that you have called us to do as your people. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you help us, Lord, to face opposition in strength. Lord, in strength through the Holy Spirit and through strength of community, of being one body together as we pursue you. Lord, we ask that you would continue to minister to us and help us to be a people about your presence. In your name. Amen. Amen.